Hey everybody, this is Joshua Heston. And I'm Lisa Martin. And this is the Dark Ozarks on the Branson Podcast Network. We're an exploration of everything that's dark in history, mysteries, the paranormal, and everything else. We explore the noir, the unknown, cryptozoology, UFOs, paranormal, and all the dark stuff that happens in the Ozarks. You can find Dark Ozarks on Branson Podcast Network on Facebook under Dark Ozarks, as well as our YouTube channel, Dark Ozarks. We'll leave no stone unturned to bring you the dark history, mysteries, and legends of the Ozarks. Welcome to the Dark Ozarks. We are discussing the hauntings of Joplin, Missouri. But first, we want to remind you that the Dark Ozarks podcast is now available on Branson Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or about any other podcast platform. So what do you think may surprise people about the ghost tales of Joplin, Missouri? Joplin's ghost tales are almost as old as Joplin itself. The sheer number of hauntings in varied circumstances may likely be the biggest surprise. Joplin was a frontier town, a mining town, and that rough and tumble past still lingers in some places. We will return to Haunted Joplin, but first we want to invite you to like, follow, and subscribe to Dark Ozarts on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, as well as your favorite podcast platform. We also invite you to become a Dark Ozarts subscriber on Facebook. On the Dark Ozarks Facebook page, click subscribe, have your login information ready, and join Dark Ozarks behind the scenes for only $4.99 per month. Your $4.99 per month subscription allows you to come with us on paranormal investigations, deep dive research, and topics too controversial for public view. The next 100 subscribers will be entered in a drawing for a free Dark Ozarks t-shirt and an exclusive signed first-round copy of the book, Dark Ozarks, The Spooklight. Subscribe today to be entered in the drawing. And now you can get Dark Ozarts t-shirts for sale at darkozarts.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. We encourage you to check out Always Buying Books in Joplin, Missouri, in person and online on Facebook and at the website alwaysbuyingbooks.com for all of your reading needs, including a large section, paranormal history, and more. Not to mention, the building is haunted. Tell Bob and Elise that we sent you. We also want to thank Beard Engine Brewing Company in Alba, Missouri. Beard Engine Brewing is the only English-style brewery in Missouri and has been twice named Missouri's best brewery by the Missouri Brewers Association. Great beer and great food in a historical building with a noir past. And yes, their building is also haunted. Tell Nate and Tiff that we sent you. Mm, good times, great books, and great beer and food. I'm 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 ready for a grilled peanut butter and jelly sandwich and another book on vehicles. And there you go. Nice combination. <laughs> it, 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 it is. Now, tonight's episode is coming off of the heels of last night's or last week's walking tour. Yes, the the old downtown walking tour in Joplin. There is something very special about being in the physical space of, of all of these historic events and learning some of the tragic moments, especially that now, for example, might just be a blacktopped parking lot. Yes, exactly. We often drive down the street and don't realize what has happened there in the past, whether it be tragic or enjoyable or triumphant. And 
as we were, were discussing on the tour and then also discussing on the YouTube short. And we do encourage you to follow us on the YouTube channel, The Dark Ozarks. But there's something really, I, I think, a historic juxtaposition with Joplin in the sense that today Joplin is comparatively a small town. It's around 50,000 people and reasonably easy to navigate through, recognize familiar faces and that sort of thing. And at the same time, it was, I would contend, uh, an almost surreal level of wealth that was developed in the 1870s, 1880s, making Joplin, first of all, just in terms of money, a crown jewel, not just in Missouri, but a, a city rising out of the American frontier. Yes. And along with that came, of course, this extraordinary opulence, equal amount of vice in some situations, mob action. Joplin was put on the radar for Chicago gangsters as a place to hide out and, mm -hmm. and disappear for a while. There's just an, an extraordinary combination of things happening within this comparatively small town, this comparatively small space in the world. Very true. But to, to flip that on its head a little bit, if you go back to the 1890s, when you include the itinerant miners coming through and the mining camps, they you know would estimate that the population at any given time was about 100,000 people. Yes. So twice as big as it is now at a time when population was a lot less. And it was so well known that an example that is is given often is Howard Hughes's father, who made his wealth in the Texas oil fields, quit the oil fields in Texas to come to Joplin to get into the mining because, quote, <clears throat> That's that's where the action is, he said. <laughs> and it was. That is the the reality. It wasn't mm -hmm. a uh, it wasn't speculation. Uh, the the lead and zinc deposits were truly immense, having also been discovered at a point when lead and zinc were crucially important in developing Western the Western civilization. It, they really were for munitions for wartime, for industrialization. Zinc is still very crucial in so many applications as well as lead. But whether it was for munitions and then later on batteries, et cetera, it really built the comfort and ease of living that we take for granted now. Mm -hmm. So just as a, as a bit of an overview, when before 1873, before Joplin was incorporated, there were a, an interesting combination of communities that were in some cases coming together, in some cases in conflict with each other to create what we now see. And at the same time, Carthage, not very far away, had been sitting there as the county seat since before the Civil War. 
Yes, since 1842, and then there'd been a, another county, Sarkozy was the county seat before that. But Joplin itself did not come in, as you say, come into being until the 1870s. There, there were villages prior to the Civil War in the area that is now Joplin, particularly Blytheville, which is in North Joplin. John Cox settled it and founded the village of Blytheville. Later on, Patrick Murphy founded Murfreesburg, which is actually the area we're going to talk about a lot. And they later merged. But really, before the Civil War, you had Blytheville, and then you had some settle settlement, sporadic farms and so forth. But the closest town was actually Sherwood, which now would be just on the northwest edge of Joplin. And it was the third largest city in the area. And probably, except for the Civil War, we would be talking about Sherwood and not Joplin. Right, because during the Civil War, Sherwood was burned. It was burned to the ground. And I don't know that we're going to get into that a lot tonight, <laughs> but maybe in another episode. But since Sherwood was burned in the war, it allowed growth of, of Joplin. But initially, after the war, you had two cities grow up. Blytheville became East Joplin. And then you had Murfreesburg that eventually became West Joplin. And they feuded. In fact, in the valley by Turkey Creek along Main Street, which is now Landreth Park, they would meet and have battle royales, basically, at times. Feuds, open feuds. And so what did that actually look like? I'm assuming it was just predominantly fist fighting. Fought with their fists, knives, and, and guns. There were there were shootings, etc. Kind of kind of a you know frontier version of West Side Story. But they, that wasn't isolated. There were other areas around here that that would happen just across the state line in Kansas at Glena and Empire City. They did the same thing. <laughs> and in part, it I think it grew out of rivalry over control of these resources and who was going to kind of guide the area. And it would spill over into just everyone having a big fight. I, I was going to ask in terms of what the, the specific motivation was that was leading into that, as well as just humanity's natural tendency toward tribalism and violence. Probably a little bit of tribalism and probably too much whiskey and <laughs> <laughs> availability of, of firearms. <laughs> and so, so in essence, in, in good frontier style, regular Tuesday night. Exactly. And That's just how we're going to settle the, the argument. Yeah. And this went on for two or three years, and then eventually the two cities merged. The for for me, although I did not grow up, as we've noted, I've not grown up, I did not grow up in the Joplin area. You have there, there's a couple of things that are reminiscent to me. Much of my family's from Lucas County, Iowa. Lucas County was a huge coal mining area and not big in terms of Joplin standards, but I believe during the 
the heyday of Lucas on the Burlington Northern Railroad had uh, 17 saloons on Front Street. And uh, <laughs> yes, and, and then the mines closed in the three years, I think it was down to three. In essence, tonight, we're going to be telling two stories. We're going to be telling the story of the wealth and the opulence and sometimes tragedy that is associated with a town like this. And at the same time, within immediate spaces, we are dealing with beer, whiskey, brothels, thousands of low-paid, very hardworking miners and workers and tradesmen all pushed together in essentially a couple hundred acres. Yeah, uh, two or three different areas that were sort of the, the really mining camps, but none of them that huge. And so you had thousands of people. And to be perfectly honest, I think law enforcement in the city were more concerned with just keeping a lid on things <laughs> than anything else because you don't want to think about it. But to be perfectly honest, you have to manage that pressure cooker that is always boiling in that kind of situation because they were outnumbered. You were you were not going to you were not going to quell a mob necessarily if they figured out they wanted to be a mob which did no. happen sometimes it did and I, I know this isn't necessarily an order but let's let's start with some of that mob action and history okay we can do that particularly the thomas gilliard affair i think that would it is it's attention getting it is tragic yes uh, it was April 15th, 1903. Yes. And this is height of mining and just everything going on in town. And Thomas Gilliard was a young man who, there's a couple different accounts published. One is that he was from Alabama and coming up north to work on a railroad crew and was on his way to Waco, Missouri to join up with a railroad crew to work. Another account was that he was from the general area and it's from research, it's not real clear. I tend to go with the research that he was from the south and coming up for the railroad gang. Seems to be a little more information on that. He was a young black man in his early 20s, and he ended up in the Kansas City Bottoms, which was in the valley that in the 1870s, they had these feuds going on and these fights going on. It was near the railroad tracks, near the railroad station, and you would have hobos and transients living there, people hopping trains, people who were down on their luck in shanties, living in vacant railroad cars, things like that. And he ended up there. There, A report came into the police department, someone stealing a gun. 
from one of the stores and a report that the young man had been seen going towards the bottom. So the police send officer Theodore Leslie to investigate. So he goes up to the bottoms, he's going through talking to people, going through cars and to set the scene, you know, he'd be climbing in a railroad car and there might be 10 hobos sleeping in it. So he's looking for his suspect and he, he climbs in a car. Witnesses say that they hear gunshot, uh, two gunshots and that he cries out and falls and they realize the officer's been shot and one of the men in the car runs. It is a fatal shot. He, he, he passes shortly after. And initially the, the suspect gets away. There, there was a, a young man that was a witness. He was a 17 year old man who described him for the police. The next day, a couple of employees at John Freeman's blacksmith shop notice a young man acting, acting odd, acting suspicious, and who fits the description that had been circulating about the man who had shot the officer. So they detain him and walk him over to the jail, and he's arrested, and it is Thomas Gilliard. And so word starts going around town that the officer's killer has been captured and he's in the jail. No one really knows what the spark was that turned this into a mob. That, that we really don't know. But shortly thereafter, a mob starts gathering at the jail and the mob grows. It eventually grows to at least, they say, 3,000 people, which is a huge amount of people standing on the street corner. They end up finding a large piece of wood, post, or something that they use as a battering ram and actually batter in the side of the jail. It's a brick building. They tear a hole in the, in the brick wall, and they take Gilliard out and they take him down the block to a telephone pole and they are preparing to, to lynch him. The, the police officers and the mayor, the city attorney, other city officials are come out. A couple of them are actually on horseback riding into the crowd trying to stop this. And one of the... Uh, city officials ends up with the 17 year old witness on the back of his horse and the young man is yelling I don't know if it's him trying to calm everyone down city officials are fighting with the mob over the the rope trying to keep them from hanging the man and before it's said and done the mob ends up pulling the rope out of the city officials hands and he is pulled aloft. And what actually killed Mr. Gilliard was a spike coming through the bottom of the crossbar of the telephone pole ends up going through his, the top of his skull. It is, no matter how you cut the story, it's tragic. It is very tragic. 
I, I would say the 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 saddest day in history in Joplin. Unfortunately, it, even it's not an ice, you know, like completely isolated event. That there were other similar events that did happen through the region on occasion in other places. This one, you had the emotional uproar of people being upset of the officer being killed, but it, it's again, it's not real clear how it got to this point. There, there was a large, a fairly large African American population in town many very well-liked, other immigrants, other minorities as well. There was a fairly robust Chinese population in town at the time too. But to be honest, mob mentality took over, I think. And, and, then, and then it didn't even stop there. No, the, the mob essentially had created its own weather pattern of violence that needed to be expended. It did, and the, the city realizing realizing how volatile the situation was and that the that it was actually volatility growing even even after this the city decided they would close all the saloons because they were afraid if if they got drunk that it would get worse and unfortunately that backfired because then you had several thousand very irate men who then could not get a beer or glass of whiskey, and that made them more mad. And they took it out on buildings, houses, and then they they did target some businesses that were uh, run by African-Americans, particularly barbershops and so forth, and actually ended up turning over several houses, literally turning them over like you would think of people turning a car over on its side. Right. It's... I think it's it's difficult today, looking back, to really wrap our heads around what this moment would have been like. Chaos, absolute chaos, and basically the virtually all of the African American residents in town left and left pretty much left on foot. Uh, a number walked to Galena, Kansas. A number walked to Web City and Carthage very few came back right and this is this is a pattern that we see at the turn of the 20th century Mm -hmm. uh, throughout a number of locations not just in the ozarks but in the overall central region of the united states yeah no it's it's just a very yeah it's it's a very it is a very sad chapter in history that shouldn't have happened and to be honest, we we really don't know. The uh, the the witness on that day was saying, you know, I'm not sure if it's him or not. From the remaining documents, he really didn't say anything afterwards. And to be perfectly honest, I imagine he was reticent to say much either way, fearing uproar, no matter what he said. So it's hard for us to to really know. Uh, it is, which was going to be my next question, impressions or thoughts from a legal perspective of the situation and of the potential guilt of the, the person who was hanged and killed. It, it does appear from various statements that, that he was one of the men in the train car, not the only one and not the only one of about the same age, etc. It's possible that he could have been 
could have been the suspect, but, <clears throat> but not a foregone conclusion. It does no. not appear. And I don't think anyone will ever know. Right. It's the possibility of being a suspect is a terrible reason to die. Yes, it is. That's, that's, you know, why, why legal process should play out. Yes. One of the really heartbreak, further heartbreaking aspects of this particular story is with the dog. Yeah. That was, was actually in the, in the Joplin News Herald shortly after the event. The article read, after spending five days and anxiously awaiting for his master, the little black cocker spaniel that belonged to Thomas Gilliard has died. The little animal was in the keeping of a family named Burns on, the, on North Main Street. At the time of Gilliard's capture last Thursday afternoon, it is said the faithful little canine was not far distant. As the wretched man was led into town, the dog followed close upon his heels. Burns was standing near the jail as the unfortunate man was thrown into a cell. For a while, the dog remained outside of the building and whined as if his little heart would break. Burns patted the animal on the back and said, poor doggy. And from that time until the animal's death, Burns and the dog were inseparable friends. When the crowd grew dense, the dog huddled close to the feet of the big man, and after the prisoner, uh, the dog's master, Thomas Gilliard, had been hanged and the crowd had dispersed, the dog followed Burns to his home and remained there until the dog died of grief. So yes, it appears the, the dog starved himself to death. Yes, at the, at the absence of Thomas Gilliard. And to me, that really highlights and, and, and shows uh, the humanity of this man who was killed by mob. Yes, I mean, and, and most stories are, are not simply black and white regardless. And it, this no. certainly does show that regardless of what happened on that day, that he, he certainly had a, a bond with his, his dog that goes beyond what most dogs have, to be honest, it seems. Yes. In, in regards to the locations, the, and, and we referenced this at the beginning of the episode, but the jail that Thomas Galliard was placed in, the jail that this mob of 3,000 broke through, pulled him out, is just on the immediate northwest corner of downtown. Yes, on 2nd Street, 2nd and Joplin. It's a parking lot now. And that is is very powerful to me. You know, there's hundreds of thousands of people who will drive by this random parking lot today. Mm -hmm. For the record, it's a nicely blacktopped parking lot, and the the implication, uh, the 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 headspace that would would come along with this is that nothing happened here. It's a parking lot, right? And without being able to dig into the history without being able to pinpoint locations, we'd have no idea that this unbelievably monumental, extraordinarily tragic moment occurred. And this moment that speaks so powerfully into the human experience that gives us so much to learn from, so much to mourn, and so much to carry with us that would, in all reality, help make us better people more apt to not repeat these kind of situations and 
today it's so easy to forget. It's scary how easy it is to forget. It, it really is. And particularly if you forget or not to know. And then interestingly, you know, you go down the block on down Second Street in the next block, which was the site of the telephone pole where the, where the hanging took place, stands basically in front of the old bus depot where Greyhound Trailways buses came and went. And I can tell you that I've known people who worked there when it was still a bus depot, it's empty now, and had experience, paranormal experiences and were convinced that the building was haunted. And I heard these stories for years before I realized that the hanging was basically outside the front door of the bus depot. Do you attribute the some of the paranormal experiences within the bus station to be associated with the hanging or the mob violence? I think it's, I think it's definitely possible. Stories that I've been told over the years would be that shadow, shadow men would be seen, disembodied voices, often uh, uh, sharp voices, like someone kind of yelling, you know, someone with a sense of like someone's yelling at them, hey, you, that kind of thing. And so I, I think it is possible that it is from that event, but I, I don't know for sure. I don't know of any other event right there that would explain it. Over the, over the years, there, there were a few people who, who passed natural causes right there. But if I had to guess, I'd say that it, it was likely to be associated with that. And certainly it made a lot more sense to me after I put it together that that's where that telephone pole was mm-hmm. than, than hearing the stories before I knew that. And this is one of those, one of the things for me, the importance of paranormal research, because oftentimes we get law, not we typically, but just the impressions of paranormal research allows folks to get lost in either the 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 weeds of the technical details or the 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 arguments of is paranormal real what is it so on and so forth and those tend to be the two two camps and i think there's something very important i for for all of us to remember is that the these moments whether we we can argue about the the technical aspects but the reality is that these moments happened and that there are at times, and the Thomas Gellier case is an extraordinarily important example, that there is so much to learn in terms of allowing us to be a better people, better people individually, a better people collectively as a society. And if the sighting of a shadow man in a now-closed bus stop leads us to that point that's worth it that's a very valid point i i agree with you and and i i i think that is kind of what is lost sometimes in sort of the hubbub of the current milieu of awareness of paranormal research with the tv shows and everything it gets all 
tied up into gadgets and is this photo better than that photo, et cetera. And it's such a broader space. And empirical evidence is important, certainly if, if it can be duplicated and ratified later on. The human story is much more compelling and it allows, I think it allows people to gain empathy where sometimes they don't have it otherwise. It brings a, a human quality. It, and to me, it is so fascinating. There are points that the research on paranormal actually brings us face to face with the human reality of the past mm-hmm. that that a, a textbook cannot. And it starts out with talking about ghost stories. I think that's fascinating. I think it's I think that it can be very beautiful. And it is at times far removed from I'm now envisioning an episode in which we take the latest fad device for analysis and do a face off between that and the most malevolent demon of the week and see which one wins. (laughs) Stay tuned, everyone. (laughs) We're going to put them in a room together. And but something that, again, just in, in, in terms of the Joplin experience, the human experience and we quite frankly we we view the the nostalgic past we view the past we view the comparatively recent american past through some very odd nostalgic lenses uh, on one hand a very very beautiful uh sentimental view and on the other hand a very exciting heightened old west view that makes it all look very romantically exciting and that's overlooking we we've largely not dug into the 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 realities of those times and something that was very striking to me actually just with uh mr johnson here in hollister that one of one of the things he found very disgraceful the the typical middle american depot was built on basically the the back end of the town and you would you would step off of the you would bring you know ride the take the train into town step off the depot into trash right into the alley basically and and the fact that this is this is an era before trash service infrastructure that we take for granted mm-hmm. and so what happened you you threw your refuse out back into the outlet yep. and let people walk over it. This was also an, an era of of open livestock laws, so you would have you would have feral cats. Of course, we still have those. You would have feral cats. You would have hogs lounging in the in the alley. You it was anybody's guess what who or what you were going to be tripping over as you were making your way through these spaces. Yep. Now, coming back to this, this very fascinating, I would say intensely compressed milieu of very upper class society and essentially very lower class society mm-hmm. rammed together within a comparatively small space, all of them working very hard in their, their, their own ways that from uh, Second Street location of the jail and the hanging, 
to the opulence of the Charles Schifferdecker house is only a handful of blocks. It, it really is. It really is. And you have everything in between. <laughs> you do. Now, let's talk, I like, again, jumping, but let's talk about the Schifferdecker house. This is one of the most beautiful homes in, in Murfreesburg, one of the most beautiful homes in Joplin. It's currently being restored. Just, I love being able to say those words. Currently yeah. being restored. And lots of, lots of interesting stories. Again, Schifferdecker Mansion would have been a new mansion at the time of the 1903 riot. And, right. a, and, and also just all of it in Murfreesburg, just a handful of walks, a short walk, a very short walk between the point, the origin point of this mob action and the mansion. Right. And, and only a handful more blocks over to the Kansas City Bottoms. So, yes, I mean, in the space of, I mean, literally 10 minute walk, you're walking from this, you know, the squalor of, of shantytown in the railroad yards to opulent mansions you know the the murfreesburg district which began its its opulent development in the 1870s includes uh the architectural styles of and the list is queen anne romanesque gothic neoclassical tudor mediterranean Colonial Revival, Shingle and Craftsman Mansions. Yes. And you yeah. have you, you have all of those. You do. And and a number of them surprisingly well preserved. Yes. Very fortunate. Now, now Mr. Schifferdecker, uh, Charles Schifferdecker, was originally from Germany. Yes. And definitely had a, an eye and appreciation for miners' need for beer yes he he had apprenticed in in germany at, as a brewer as a very young young boy because he he came over to america with his mother when i think he was 13 or 14 so he already was skilled in the brewing business they ended up in southeast kansas and ironically a number of german immigrants ended up in joplin in southeast kansas and several ended up in the brewing business and he did well brewing in Baxter Springs and ultimately then decided to come to Joplin because of the attraction of the mine, mining fields and, and everything going on. He had done well enough in, in brewing and he continued to be in the brewing business in Joplin as well, but expanded into mining and banking, particularly purchasing mines and then leasing them to, to people. He ultimately became the second millionaire in Joplin, self-made millionaire. And at that, to give an idea of the amount of money that just was amassed, when the Connor Hotel opened in 1907, at the gala opening it, he paid for his drink with a thousand dollar bill and left the and left the entire thousand dollar bill as the tip. <laughs> That's impressive. That is impressive. The the home, it's it's a Queen Anne, but it's 
it's a gothic Queen Anne, complete with a, a castle turret. It, it does. And, uh, red brick. It's red brick. Very, very, when oftentimes when we say Queen Anne, we think of something very fanciful. Mm -hmm. And the, the Schifferdecker mansion is imposing. Imposing and not to overstate, but gives you more the impression of a, a little bit of a fortress motif more than a Queen Anne style home. Imported, uh, basically brought over an artisan crew from Germany of over a hundred artisans to build the house inside and out. And so everything was handcrafted. My favorite point in the house was in the dining room. The molding around the top of the room had over a hundred individually carved cherubs. They, each one was different. And the story goes that originally they all were naked. And Mrs. Schifferdecker was, was not pleased. She didn't want to have her family dinners <laughs> with naked cherubs. So then the, the artisans went back and put diapers on each one. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's all about balance. Now, you've had the opportunity to be in the home. Yeah, uh, several times what what is the interior like well very opulent victorian victorian opulent lots of amazing woodwork amazing handcrafted moldings just very 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 stately you would think you know to walk in you would think that you were in a Victorian mansion in Chicago or someplace, you know, uh, certainly that kind of craftsmanship. Just absolutely gorgeous. And this was before the current restoration. Former owners had restored it because it had it had gone through a tragedy in 1991. It it had caught fire. But if you go back when it was a a happy home. However, in 1915, there were three deaths in the family, in the home, within three months. Charles's mother-in-law, his wife, and then Charles all died in the home within less than three months. Natural cause. So then the, the home eventually was sold to other parties eventually was purchased by the Freeman family um, who uh, founded Freeman Hospital in Joplin. And Margaret Freeman was um, John Freeman's daughter-in-law and she and her son lived in the home and her son, William was a uh, World War II veteran. And by this point in 91, he was in his 70s, she was in her 90s. And they own massive amounts of property across town. Lots of antiques, lot, um, the house was full and there was a fire. And in fact, it's still an open case. They never determined the exact cause, although 
the findings indicate that it, it might have been arson, but an accelerant was not found. But that it originated, the fire originated on the land, the stairs landing upstairs. And that's where both of the Freemans were found. Uh, but they did not die in the flames, they died of smoke inhalation. Mm -hmm. So having having have you conducted uh, investigations in the home? Just very rudimentary, not not extensive, but uh, had a number of conversations with other people in the home, uh, former owners, as well as my own impressions. And certainly the former owner felt that it was haunted and she had had a number of experiences, including disembodied voices, shadow figures in the main parlor downstairs, as well as in the kitchen in the basement. Very common for people to feel uneasy on the landing upstairs, feel like you're being watched, particularly from one of the bedrooms. Always, I, I was up there probably four or five different times, and every time I felt like someone was standing behind me when I was on the, uh, on the landing. That's just how it just felt like someone was sits inches behind you, and you turn around, of course, no one was there. It just as a, as a general guess, who do you think haunts the, the, the house? I tend to lean to maybe one of the Freemans and may, maybe one of the Schiffedeckers. I, I don't know. I, I've had occasion to do tours at Mount Hope Cemetery where the, the Schiffedecker mausoleum is. And on one occasion, um, we were doing a walking tour and the cemetery was allowing people to, to see some of the historic mausoleums and they had opened the Schifferdecker mausoleum. And I and another person stepped into the mausoleum and literally something electric went through both of us as, uh, as we walked in leaving. So I don't know who that is, but so maybe one of the Schiffedeckers, but I tend to lean towards the Freemans. I think that's I think that's fair. The the Schiffer Decker Hall house is being fully restored and yes. is planned to become a museum along with three other homes, one sharing the block, the Zelican House, as well as the A.H. Rogers home. Yes. Yeah. So they're they're actually just all right together, those two on the block. And then the Rogers home is across the street. So when it's done, it's gonna, they're gonna be very nice and it's, it's gonna be a treasure for people to be able to experience them. Now, tying, of course, Schiffer Decker and his best friend, El Edward Zelikin, were both brewers. Yep. Their home shared the same block and you could walk between the, the homes, but they shared something else, which is of course an association with the saloons and the mm -hmm. most famous saloon in Joplin was the House of Lords. Yes, definitely the, the House of Lords is, is most infamous saloon, gambling house, and brothel. It was the retort would be that New Orleans had the House of the Rising Sun and Joplin had the House of Lords. It was rather notorious. The uh, Saloon was on the main floor, and the gambling hall was on the second floor, and the brothel was on the third. Uh, it, is, the, it is long gone. <laughs> Would you start to say? I was going to say, and the, uh, the brothel was not a secret. No, no, it, it, it was not a secret whatsoever. Operated very openly 
there are accounts of people visiting, you know, on business in town. And because it sat on, well, actually the 300 block of Main Street, which is now, the area is now Spiva Park, and faced the Joplin Hotel and then later the Connor Hotel across the street. And people talking about that the, the Joplin Hotel and then the Connor Hotel had a standing policy that they would not put a lady in a room on the front side of the hotel because so that she wouldn't have to look out her window onto <laughs> the House of Lords because the the ladies on the third floor were want to stand naked in the windows. Yes, essentially is advertising. Oh, definitely is advertising, but it was so routine that they did it, you know, all the time. And visitors, some visitors complaining that they didn't understand how hundreds of people would be walking on the side drop, sidewalk, not paying attention to it, and the police wouldn't do anything about it. Well, and again, this this comes down to real life dynamics. I, th- I think the the police, for example, had learned their lesson with the the Galliard saloon closings. Yes. Uh, the reality that you have tens of thousands of minors that you don't want to make angry. Right, because there's only so much you're, you're going to do if, if, if they realize that they, they outnumber you. Yeah, I mean, to be to be real frank, but the, the House of Lords still has a notorious pot, you know reputation now, and it's been torn down for 100 years. So. <laughs> Tunnels throughout town, through various from various establishments around town, underground to the House of Lords, so that gentlemen could walk in without being seen on the sidewalk. <laughs> um, the Joplin Globe newspaper building stood on the back side of the House of Lords, and at one point, A. H. Rogers owned the Joplin Globe as well as an interest in the House of Lords and had a walkway installed between the two buildings. So, (laughs) convenience. Convenience. It's it's about convenience. Now, what were some of the other structures that, because I I think I read within the documentation that approximately 75%, because of the mining, that approximately Mm -hmm. 75% of downtown Joplin is undermined. Oh, Um, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> With, uh, from, the, from the lead and zinc mining. So really a perfect combination in terms of building this. So you had the capacity to, and, and this is minus the brothel aspect. This is like straight out of Scooby-Doo, a secret passageway from a mansion to a downtown building. Um, yes. What are, what are some of the known locations that had tunnels? The Connor Hotel, the Keystone, the Olivia, most most of the larger buildings downtown had openings to the tunnels. The Frisco building, the Pearl Brothers building, and the, the tunnels are still there. The only people I know that I've talked to that have personal experience with them anymore are generally electricians because something will happen in one of the buildings and they actually have to have access because there there are lines that run through those tunnels and so occasionally someone will have to go work on something and so you know i've been told by a few different guys who've worked on them you know they'll 
just their accounts. And it, it's funny because there'll be these big burly guys and it's like, you know, they, they open the door and, you know, you shine the flashlight and you can only see about 25 feet and, you know, and they're very candid that they really didn't want to go in there, but they had to. And the, the tunnels have a mystique in town to this day. And occasionally you will have a cave in. The last one I remember was probably 15 years ago. And it, oh, it, it was, it was almost down to 15th street. So you're talking about 10 blocks away on wall street. So a couple blocks west of Maine and about 10 blocks south of, of where the Connor and House of Lords would have been. And the police stood guard 24 hours a day until they got it sealed up. And that's the thing is that they're very afraid of people getting in the tunnels and getting lost or, or dying. Yeah. yeah. But there are, there are a number of buildings still left that have access. The stories of haunted tunnels, clandestine meetings, this sort of thing. A lot of times we relegate that to myth, but in this case, it's not myth, it's real. It, it is, it is real. And in, in, in this area, not only those kind of tunnels, but just the, the mining tunnels, the mining shafts, at one point you could drive underground from Joplin to Miami, Oklahoma, except for when you got to Spring River, you had to go up an elevator and cross over and go back down and they kept jeeps and everything down in there so that's that's what people did my dad worked for eagle picture when they were still doing mining stuff back in the 60s and do that all the time and then when they stopped pumping the water out of the mines they they just left everything down there and filled it up so all that equipment those cars those jeeps it's all sitting down there wow now you mentioned one of the tunnels from House of Lords leads to, or led to the Olivia. Yes. Um, This is one of our favorite historic structures in downtown Joplin. Yes, Um, definitely. And in my opinion, the most haunted building in Joplin. I I was gonna say, it's very, very haunted. Incredible experiences. And it does not do it justice to say that it was built as an apartment. No, very high-end luxury. The, it was built in 1906. Arthur Bindelari built it. He was a mining engineer who built it when he was 26 years old. He came down from Canada at age 21 and basically had the Midas touch when it came to finding lead and zinc. Went to work for most of the big mining magnets in town, all the guys who now have streets named after them. And everything he he made all the right decisions and five years was able to amass enough money to build that in paid for in cash over $150,000 which in 1906 was an astronomical amount of money and again it was something that was very ornate just like the Schiffer Decker house it was built in Pompeian style Pompeii had recently been unearthed and so there were lots of what we would consider Gothic motifs in Pompeii, spiders, spider webs, things like that. And so you had a lot of stained glass and ironwork, et cetera, in those motifs. Imported Italian yellow marble columns, three feet wide. The woodwork was just amazing. Exotic woods. 
when I was doing tours, investigations regularly there oh, about 10 years ago now, the consortium that was in the process of trying to rehabilitate the building then were pricing, trying to match some of these wood panels and some of them, you know, eight by 10 panel would cost $10,000 now. <laughs> 42 apartments that they were all different. This wasn't a cookie cutter situation. Everything had a different layout. Every apartment had a different fireplace and a different mantle, appointments that you don't see today. It would be astronomical in expense to build. Yes. Where yes. Millions and millions of dollars. We've really become accustomed to this idea that spaces that are mass produced. We are. We are unaccustomed to this idea. And to me, it's one of the reasons that it is so crucial that places like the Olivia, like the Schiffer Decker House are preserved so that we can not only remember them and, and exist within their space, continue to exist within that space, but also to learn the mindset, the headspace of the, of the men and women who were there before and what went into this you this is a situation how many how many stories is the Olivia? five five uh, i should have remembered that since i've walked all of the all of them uh, yes, you have. a very very cold day and i think it was actually colder inside the olivia than it was out it might have been well you know those <laughs> those walls get cold they stay cold yeah but this is this is a a a five-story monolith that is also created as an exquisite singular piece of craftsmanship. It, it, abs- it absolutely was. Just so many things that happened there, tragic as well as jubilant, lots of celebrations, etc. But um, 1908, it was only two years old when there was an explosion to the credit of how well it was built did not condemn the building. <laughs> no, no, a, a lesser building probably would have been condemned or maybe even destroyed. It was a gas explosion in the basement. Yes. What happened was a young night clerk, Marvin Reynolds, 20 years old. Part of his duties at night was to just check on things in the basement. The basement you had tenant storage, but you also, there were businesses down there. There was a restaurant, a haberdashery, a barbershop, et cetera, a pool hall. And so he would just make rounds, check on everything and feed the building cat. At that time, most buildings like that had a, a cat to keep mice down. And it was about 5 a.m. He went down and went to hit the light switch and the lights didn't come on. That time, Lights there and in most places in town were on natural gas, not electric. And this is also before they put odor in natural gas. So that's that's why we have the sulfur smell now is because of things like this. Lights didn't come on. He struck a match so he could see there was a gas leak. The match uh, ignited the gas. There was a fireball. It blew him through a brick wall. The fireball went through the, the corridors and up through the floor of the Northwest apartment on the first floor. 
and basically just shot a hole through the the apartment the couple living in the apartment fell into the basement had their hair burned off i mean it was amazing tragic one of the tenant one of the other tenants on the first floor was a doctor and he when he heard the explosion he ran to the lobby realized marvin wasn't there and figured he was downstairs went downstairs and he later said it took him about 15 minutes to find marvin and marvin was 12 feet from the bottom of the stairs that's how smoky and everything it was but he was still alive and he carried him upstairs and they did get him to st john's hospital and this was st john's on uh, 22nd sergeant before the st john's hospital was built that is now gone from the tornado said several things repeatedly he said please don't tell my folks tell mr bindalari that it wasn't my fault and then he cursed the cat he survived about 30 minutes and but he was burned so badly that even his knuckles were falling out and his skin was flailed so it was horrendous it was and he is believed to be one of the ghosts who haunts the olivia i i feel that very strongly you will see particularly on the on the third floor you will see a man a young man looking out of a window and often it, he looks to be bare-chested like he's not wearing a shirt you will find footprints. I, th I think this is one of the most eerie things I've ever seen anywhere. You will find bare footprints in a room that there would always be dust everywhere. And this actually happened on one occasion when we had reporters from the Pittsburgh, Kansas paper with us and it ended up in the paper photos. They'd be like the feet were wet because there's not a speck of dust in the footprint, mm -hmm. although there's dust everywhere else. And usually they would start in the middle of a large room and then walk towards a wall. So there was no way that someone could have gotten in without disturbing the, the dust between the doorway and, and where the prints were. I've spoken to various people who lived in the building over time that said that they had experience of finding footprints like that as well. So it's something that's happened over time. And then he's been seen in houses around the Olivia one account of someone actually who I'd known for years, she owned the house on the west side of the of the building. She woke up in the middle of the night and she said it was about 5 a.m. And there was um, a man standing in, in her bedroom and he was totally naked with burned skin, blood, and holding his hands in front of his face like in a defensive posture. And then he just disappeared. It's heartbreaking, really. It, it really is. It's very tragic, but I, I do definitely believe that Marvin is there. Marvin, I think, is one of the only instances that I've dealt with that I don't know that he knows he's passed. He seems, EVPs and everything seems to think be that he's caught in that moment. We're either recording a moment in time mm -hmm. being repeated, or if it is him consciously that he's caught in that moment and that's what he's aware of not that he's remembering it mm -hmm. it's it's difficult it's difficult this aspect of paranormal research is difficult it can be because it's the the idea in this case is a possibility that here is a very innocent young man who for no fault of his own 
other than going to go check on the cat. Yeah. May be trapped in a loop of the most horrific thing that you could imagine. Exactly. Exactly. So I'm, I, I always, at the Olivia, I'm, I, I always think of Marvin and I, I hope he's, I hope at some point he find you know, some resolution, some sense of peace. On the other hand, maybe we are just experiencing a, a moment that is imprinted in the environment so dramatically because of, it's a pun, but the explosiveness of the moment. Yes. And, and that is something that also seems to happen. It does seem to be associated with battlefields. The explosion, the gas explosion could be something similar in the, the idea that there's a, obviously the, the physical release of energy, but also a metaphysical release of energy that creates a, an echo that becomes imprinted on the surroundings. Yes, almost like a, a cassette tape replaying. And that with with some regularity, a flash or an impression of the event replays approximately within the space. Yes, but Marvin is not the only presence there either. No, there's, there's, there's a number actually. And what, uh, what are some of, I know you had a very dramatic experience on one of the uh, upper back stairs. Yes. Actually, before I tell that one, because it, it, that happens, there's just above the third floor uh, and above the apartment where this happened, the back apartment on the third floor, there seems to be a woman present that we've encountered a number of times, but there'd be times that you would see a, a shadow form walk down the hall and into the doorway of this apartment. And on one occasion, we had several team members that we were uh, walking down the hall. We saw a shadow. We walk into the living room following it. And one of the team members had a, had, we had a video camera running. And we, a couple of people were talking about seeing the shadow. And it, did you see which way it went when it came through the door kind of thing? The room next door would have been a bedroom. Clear as day, audible voice of a woman that says, voices like she's saying you know why am i hearing voices to the point that a couple a couple of people kind of jump <laughs> they were surprised and then literally out the door of that apartment right next to it is the staircase the bat staircase and that's where the the experience that you alluded to happened walking up the stairs and someone was on the next flight up turned so I couldn't quite see him he was out of view and I hear him say what the hell and so I look up and this figure is coming down the stairs and a man dressed 1930s zoot suit with a fedora and literally with something that looks like it's rolled up in a sheet or a blanket over his shoulder that would have been the size of a, a small person. And I, I just kind of stand there for a second and it's coming towards me. And I'm thinking this has to be residual, something just replaying. And he gets about three steps above me and literally turns and looks directly at me and then tips a finger to the brim of his hat at me and walks on as 
team member runs by this time, he's coming down. He goes, did you see that? <laughs> and, and stops because he, he sees him again. And as he gets down to the bottom of the stairs to turn in the doorway to go past that uh, apartment where the woman is, the image disappears. Now, in addition to this that I think is really, really fascinating in terms of a shifting of space is that this is a very small staircase. Yes, and, and that's the thing is when, you, when you're on a staircase, and Bill and I talked about this at the time, it was like, it's like he took up the whole staircase, but yet walked past us, if that makes yeah. sense. And yes. the staircase it, is not very wide. It, it's about all two people could pass each other, period. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yes. Without turning sideways. I think you probably would have to turn, one of you have to turn sideways, but yeah. walk past us as if we weren't there. And, and so it was, it was a sense of you're seeing this, but it's almost a shifting of space as well as what you're seeing too. Yeah. It's a very, very interesting phenomena. And I think to me, the, the space phenomena is almost as fascinating as the physical paranormal or ghost phenomena because it's it's corporeal and non-corporeal interacting within a space that does not have space to interact within that space but the non-corporeal also is in some way corporeal enough to be recognizing in this particular case you within yeah. the space exactly. these things that with our current high school level of physics says it's not possible but we also know that current high school level of physics is being expanded upon. Very rapidly. I mean, I'm a, every year there are new discoveries and findings. So I think eventually we'll be able to explain how that happens. But definitely one of the experiences that's impressed me more than any other that I've ever had. Interestingly, the end of that hallway, of the same hallway, is the other end of the hallway was the Capone apartment. Yes, which has, even just for my limited amount of time being in that space, has a very odd and memorable energy. Yes. The very first time I walked in the, in the building, the first time I was being, you know, taken through by an owner, walking down that hallway, suddenly I had the sensation of a hundred voices talking to me at once. Then when got through the doorway, because you have the actually... You have an entryway, archway, foyer, then the front door, and then the foyer. Yeah. Again, very ornate. And the first time that as I walked through that threshold space, I'm carrying an audio recorder. It's a little stick recorder. And in reviewing it, there's a woman's voice very clearly as because I marked where I was at as I'm passing through that entryway. A woman's voice that says not through here with your gun and the only thing i could figure is that she mistook the stick recorder as a gun in my hand and that was the capone safe house the story went that he would send members of the outfit down there to cool off when things got too hot for them in chicago and the story was that his aunt Teresa would stay in the apartment and kind of keep an eye on things 
it was the only apartment in the building that had a buzzer to the front from the front desk so that the front desk would buzz could buzz them presumably let them know when they needed to know that someone was coming and that that buzzer fortunately was taken out and is in safekeeping in a collection so very that's very interesting so that that entire area has on that third floor is a lot of activity other another thing that happened in that building that and it repeat it happened multiple times that may or may not be related to the man on the bat stairs is the sounds of a violent argument and crashing glass that to the point that the first time it happened we would typically the police department knew we would we were there and typically we just notify them. So that night we are, we're actually on the front stairs going up to the third floor. And we start hearing what sounds like something heavy being dragged across the floor, like heavy furniture or something. And there were times, you know, the buildings being worked on and everything that people, you know, would get into the building, try to steal things, that kind of thing. So first we thought, okay, someone's in the building. Then you start hearing, two men arguing very loudly, but you can't quite make out exactly what's being said, but it's obvious that they're really upset and they're arguing and you hear, you keep hearing it, it's like something heavy being drugged. And so we split up and some go to the bed stairs and we're going up trying to figure out where they are. Then you start hearing crashing glass and like windows breaking, that kind of thing. To the point, one of our team members at the time was a fireman. so. He, He's like, someone's in the building. So he, he, call, he calls dispatch and, and then gets, gets teased by the dispatcher. You say, are you sure it's not? You aren't hearing what you're, you're there to hear? No, there's someone in the building. <laughs> so they come out, bring dogs. No, there's not, nothing in the building. There's no one in the building. Over time, I had that happen several different times. And I remember one, another time there and we told the owner that uh, this would happen. He kind of laughed. He thought we were joking. So one night we're in the building and he's with us. And all of a sudden you start hearing glass breaking and he's running to the other end of the building because he's, he's convinced someone's in his building, you know, gets down there. There's nothing going on, no glass broken. So what that's all about, I don't know. Yeah. But it happens. But it happens. <laughs> and not just once. No. And I think that's one of the things that, as paranormal investigators, it's important to know is sometimes things just happen, and we mm -hmm. do not have a clear-cut explanation. And even finding a, a specific notation in history, which sometimes is impossible, but say right. you do find a, a notation in history that references this, great, we've established that this event happened it seems to be replaying how does it replay we have no idea no that we don't know hopefully one of these days we figure it out and i, I hope i'm still around when they figure it out yeah but it's it, the olivia there are a handful of, of homes and buildings that i've been in that seem almost alive mm -hmm. and, and the olivia is one of them it is. And three years ago, a fire was started in it and caused caused quite a bit of damage on the upper two floors. And it is being entirely renovated now as well. That was one night I cried. I cried when I saw the 
the footage of it burning. Yeah, yeah, I'm very, very relieved. And in other situations, that that type of occurrence could have just been the end of it. Yes, fortunately, it was not. Mm -hmm. And you, you think about uh, you think about the craftsmanship and the heart. You think about the history. You think about all these individuals' experiences that are really in one way, shape, or form contained within these walls, these five stories of, mm -hmm. uh, um, that is, there's something very precious about that. And the idea of, and, and, but also you think of the number of places, similar places that have been reduced to an empty lot or a parking lot or apartment buildings or postmodern library. That, and it is quite heartbreaking, which is an excellent segue to the Connor Hotel. Yes, it is. The Connor Hotel was another absolutely magnificent building that sat across the street from the House of Lords on the on the 300 block of, of Main Street. Ironically, it was the third hotel on site. The, the first one actually was a wood frame hotel that was dismantled and moved from Baxter Springs, Kansas, when... Baxter Springs was the first cow town in Kansas and erected there. And then a much more substantial three-story hotel was replaced it, and that was the Joplin Hotel, and was very successful, owned by several men in town, including Tom Connor. And then the Keystone Hotel was built catacorner from the Joplin Hotel and on the same side of the street and across the intersection from the House of Lords. And it was a six-story beautiful hotel that unfortunately did not survive urban renewal in the in the 60s. And so at that point, Tom Connor and his partners decided they were going to build a new hotel that was more impressive than the Keystone, which they did. And it was it was to be called the Joplin Hotel again. But while it was being constructed, uh, Tom Connor ended up dying of natural causes. And his partners decided to name the hotel in his honor then. And it, I mean, it was just beautiful appointment, marble throughout the lobby areas, the public areas, beautiful staircase makes you think of the staircase in the movie Titanic, very ornate uh, facade, some remnants of it saved and are incorporated in the, the Nets building on site, the now old library building, and some are in the museum. It was the place to be, was where people celebrated, it was went to enjoy themselves, have dances, parties, etc., and was the nicest hotel in town. And this, I think, is especially as we've seen this shift from hotels like the Connor to mid-century motels, and then the transition to the essentially big box motel that's out at the interstate exits. It really has shifted. I mean, obviously, the the working point of it is temporary or transient lodging for mm -hmm. uh, for individuals, and certainly with the the Connor that was aimed toward 
individuals with with wealth. It was a wealthy hotel. Yes, it was. Tom Carner was a interest. He was an interesting person as well. He immigrated as a child from with his family from Ireland, ended up in Texas, and actually was one of the very first Texas cowboys to drive cattle to Kansas to Bastard Springs, and ended up staying in Southeast Kansas, and then ended up in Joplin and got involved in banking and mining, and he became the first millionaire in town actually before Mr. Schifferdecker. Oh, I, I, I want to step back one second because it reminds me we we're talking about brewing so much. An interesting note at the Olivia, the owner, Arthur Bindelari, although he was a mining engineer and he actually had patents for various uh, mining equipment. One thing that you can thank him for, everyone, is the cardboard carrying case for six bottles of beer. He invented it and patented it. Wow. So every time you get a six-pack bottles of beer, you can thank Arthur Bindelari for that. I will do that. I like that. I like that a lot. Now, the Connor Hotel, something that I was reading about it, it, so there's something about its physical structure that it caused a type of wind tunnel effect. Mm -hmm. What, What was that all about? Well, my my understanding is ba- based on its height, because it, it was the tallest building in town until Messenger Towers was built in the 70s. Between it and the bank building across the street, that it ended up creating a wind tunnel through 4th Street. That's my understanding. Okay. Now, we're jumping forward, and of course, you, you actually have some of the consulting work that your dad did had a direct association with the final days of the Connor. Very, very tragic final days coming, uh, ultimately coming down to November 11th of 1978. And I think it's a a cautionary tale of urban renewal. It is. As you said, the, the, the motor motels, over on the highway and over on Rangeline were being built in the 60s. And in particular, ventures that were backed by Mickey Mantle were taking a lot of business away from downtown. And so occupancy had gone down and even there, there were commercial tenants as well, but occupancy was down. And there was a a push by a couple of real estate uh, developers in town wanting to take the building down. And there was pushback because people were starting to kind of get tired of that urban renewal mentality and regretted having lost buildings like Keystone and so forth. And so there was pushback, people not wanting it to be torn down. So they they wanted a campaign of information of saying it's in such bad condition, it can't be rehabbed, so it needs to come down. And certain people in town were backing that, particularly the Garvins. So one thing they did is they, they hired a, a panel of engineers to come in to give them an assessment. My, my dad was one of those engineers. And they were not happy with the, with the report they got because the engineers said, yes, there, there are some things that need to be done, 
but their opinion was that they were not so costly as to render it unfeasible or imprudent, that their recommendation was to make the improvements needed and preserve the building. So when that didn't work, they then basically got a state agency consultant to say that the valuation of the building was such that it would be a loss. And they relied on that then to then force through the demolition and sale. And the and the demolition proved to be actually quite tragic. It did. It's it, it, there's a bit of irony is that while the building while the condo was being built, two men passed away. One fell down the elevator shaft as it was being worked on and and passed away. Another was killed in a crane accident while it was being constructed. And then while they're preparing for demolition. They come in, they basically were, of course, having to weaken the supports of the building, plant the explosive charges for controlled demolition. And it was supposed to come down actually the nets the following day. And they were going to have a big ceremony and have people out and watch it come down. There were three men working to finish getting ready the night, the day before, evening before. They were all three in the basement. And Basically, later it was determined they they ended up cutting into support beams too far and the building came down prematurely. Two were killed and Alvin Summers survived and it took them three days to to find him. At first they didn't they didn't know whether anyone was alive, but they they brought in dogs and the third day the dog triggered and they found him and he had been caught in a in a small compartment basically that was about two and a half feet wide, 18 inches high and about 10 feet long. And one of the other fellows was at the other end of that hollow and had, had passed away. So he spent three days basically looking at his friend. Unbelievable. And mm-hmm intensely tragic and and especially tragic considering that had the building not been deliberately structurally weakened it it was fine yeah it it was it it was and so it it was um yeah it was a very tragic story and and i think for a lot of people reinforced the fact that they it they shouldn't have taken it down Mm -hmm. it's sometimes we now we've talked about Phantom houses, something that we, we've talked briefly about is that the Olivia seems to have a personality of its own. Some mm-hmm. of these structures do seem to almost be imbued with sentience. That can sound crazy when you say it out loud, but it it does. We And we mm-hmm. see it with, in some cases, lore associated with trains, mm-hmm. lore associated with ships. And what what are your thoughts on the Connor perhaps having some sort of almost phantom sentience? I would not be surprised. I mean, it 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 it's it kind of looms in the air, so to speak, even though it's not there, ever present. Afterwards, they built library the Joplin Library building there, and the footprint of the library overlapped most of the Connor 
and then took up some other space as well. And almost immediately the library had activity. I'm friends with a number of people who worked there over the years and I investigated the building a number of times. And repeatedly you would hear the same accounts from employees. There were shadow men, particularly in the area of the, the post art reference museum. And that actually was an area where one of the fellows passed away during the demolition, as well as one of them in the construction of the building. And they would have books that would basically fly off shelves that you could not explain. They, 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 they weren't just on the edge and fall off. They would just go across the floor, that kind of thing. They would have voices that they would hear, shadows they would see. One evening we were there and I saw a shadow man walk through the main lobby area and then disappear in the area that would have been about where the elevator shaft of the, the Connor Hotel was. And it was, he was so defined that you could see the lines of his shirt, and the shirt tucked into his pants and, and everything. And, you know, I had to wonder, is that the fellow who fell down the, the elevator shaft? I don't know, but perhaps. Mm -hmm they've had things you know where things would move inexplicably one evening we were there and there were two or three different library employees sitting there and i was there and i think a couple other people no one was touching the table we were around and items sitting on the table just slid across the table a couple of feet by itself that we never could replicate we couldn't get to do it on its own one of the really interesting things that happen. Of course, as happens in nice hotels, you have people who tend to commit suicide there. Um, yes. And there, there is a well-documented accounts of some of the, the suicides there from a concierge who worked in the, in the Connor Hotel for about 50 years. And one of his accounts that, that made the most impression on him was a well-dressed lady in the 1940s who checked in to a room on the eighth floor, very well-dressed, wearing a you know fur coat, et cetera, and ordered a milkshake and drank her milkshake and jumped out the window. Mm. And one evening we were in the building and there's several employees again and several team members and a couple of other local historians. And I just asked the question out loud if the lady who checked into the eight, a room on the eighth floor and ordered a milkshake was with us. And across the main lobby, everyone hears almost a wailing sob of a woman that ratchets up in, in volume as it goes on. And we all just turn around and look you know, at the same time I mean, it, it was it was rather eerie. It gave you the gave me gave you the chills at, at the time, and yeah. everyone looking at each other. It's like, yeah, we all heard it. And then one of my favorite all time EVPs is actually from there as well, tangentially related to Tom Connor. And mm -hmm. investigator asks if Mr. Connor is with us tonight, and there's very clearly, and you've heard it. 
a fella that sounds like he has an Irish brogue and probably has had a pint or two says oh yes he and I have been known to and he just starts mumbling and chuckling <laughs> um, and and that's kind of interesting too because Tom Connor was known to love to play practical jokes mm. well and I think it also speaks even even of this extraordinary opulence extraordinary wealth that we're talking about you know, we've, we've got Bindalari, we've got Tom Connor, we've got Charles Schifferdecker. They're all European immigrants. Yes. And individuals that, you know, a one, one wrong turn here or there, and they might have been the ones living in the slums. Very easily, very easily, because they all came, you know, came up from nothing, you know, uh, definitely a, a factor of luck involved i think and, and i think it really it really heightens these are real life examples of those uh, american dream moments that inspired so many people to come to the united states agreed agreed it was, it was a very it was a very real thing obviously there's a mythos surrounding that there's you know aspects of cultural propaganda associated with manifest destiny, et cetera. But you can't argue with the existence of the Schifferdecker house or the Olivia or the, the now gone, the Connor. Exactly. I mean, and, you know, and, and granted, all, all, all those fellas had lots of, lots of skills and savvy, but there, there were a lot of skilled, savvy people who ended up in the bottoms too. Yeah, to be very frank, you know, and I'm I'm speculating at this point, but I, I can't help but imagine that that all three of these men shared a certain amount of kinship with the working men that they were building their empires with or on. I I think so, and the stories would would bear that out that they they were very concerned with the people who worked for them in the community. You know, it's always easy to say, well, you know, once they became millionaires, rub elbows all the time, that kind of thing. And, and over time, that might have been true to an extent, but they certainly started out right in there with everyone else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, as we as we start to move toward the conclusion of the episode, what what do you want to to focus on? Oh, there's there's a there's a there's a couple things I'd like to touch on. One would be the Simon Schwartz house. It's an illustration of how all of these segments of society have interacted right in the same area, because literally we're two blocks down from the Schifferdecker house, and Simon Schwartz came to Joplin and got into dry goods, and because he he figured he could do better selling goods to the miners than mining himself and, and it served him well and again a beautiful brick queen anne it is that, that has a lot of character not necessarily the most haunted in town there are tales of it being haunted the current owners say it's not so mm -hmm. i i'm i'm not disagreeing 
one way or the other. But interesting tidbit is that in the 1920s and 30s, it was owned by Dr. Grantham. And Dr. Grantham found himself in a situation very much like Dr. Mudd did after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. The doctor had his office in the home, which was not uncommon at the time right. for doctors to do. And one night he had a knock on the door and Carla, a car of men were there and one of them had been shot in the leg and said that they'd been out hunting and had an accident he was shot. So he treated him and treated the gunshot wound. And then somewhere along a year later was when Bonnie and Clyde had their shootout at the Joplin hideout. And the infamous photos of Bonnie and Clyde were found and then published by the Joplin Police Department. And it was at that point that Dr. Grantham realized that he had treated the Clyde Barrel gang <laughs> that night. Oops. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very, very incredible. It also speaks to the fact that it really wasn't until the, the Joplin shootout that people knew what Bonnie and Clyde looked like. Right. I mean, there, there were earlier photos of them when they were young, you know, a little younger, but there weren't photos of them together and what they were what they looked like on the run mm -hmm. until then and uh, and the, a lot of the photos literally were of them on the back roads with the cars and this and that and so it really did paint that picture and yeah so Dr. Grantham realized oops <laughs> and and really as 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 Joplin is moving out of an era the Clyde Barrow gang making Joplin a hub really just creates a almost a bookend to the early days of the of the frontier violence. That's true and that's maybe one other one that I'd like to, to mention would be the Holbert funeral home because that really yeah, punctuates there too. I I love that and and it's such a easy building to overlook although it's quite beautiful in its in its own way. It is, and it's it's on Joplin in the in the uh, two hundred block, actually right across from where the Joplin jail was when Thomas Gilliard was arrested. You know, literally just around the corner from where the the hanging took place. But Holbert's was one of the very first funeral homes in town. It is a it is a very pretty building, and I I recommend you know checking it out, looking at it. It punctuated sort of the end of the while of that frontier time in the Ozarks because in 1925 it was the receiver of the body of Roy Doherty, better known as Arkansas Tom, mm -hmm. who was the last surviving member of the Doolin Dalton gang. And the the Dalton gang originally started in the 1890s, Robin Banks, and they were from Oklahoma. And actually, if you're interested, you can see their boyhood home at Red Oak 2 outside of Carthage, Missouri. It is there. Yeah. And infamously, the Dalton gang was taken down and ambushed in Coffeyville, Kansas, when they tried to rob two banks in one day. They tried to do what Jesse James failed at in Northfield, Minnesota, a bill 
Bob Dalton was kind of arrogant on that, thought he could beat best Jesse James, and he didn't. It had the same result. And basically, all the gang members there died except for Emmett Dalton, who was shot over 20 times and then was in prison for a good long time. Mm. But ironically, surviving members of the gang and Bill Dillon then formed the Dillon Dalton gang in Arkansas. Tom was one of them. He had been in the original gang. And the only reason that he wasn't in Coffeeville was he was in jail at the time. So being in jail saved him that day. But he ended up in prison over a bank heist a couple years later. And then the prison warden decided, boy, this guy's interesting and he's got skills. And he got the governor to pardon him and then took him to Hollywood to be a stuntman. I mean, it's very reminiscent of the story of Wyatt Earp later on. And so they were out there for a while and... Roy got bored, basically, I think, and decided he came back to to this area and started robbing banks again. So he went from robbing banks on horseback to robbing banks by car. In 1924, he robbed the bank at Asbury, Missouri, which isn't too far north. And he was on the run. And about eight months later, the Joplin Police Department tracked him down to a house in Joplin and they had a shootout and ended up killing him and took him to Holbert's and interesting note which you don't usually see or think about was at that time the the Holbert's funeral home had a drive-through window (laughs) and and literally literally the police would drive up and slide the body through to the morgue and the window's still there and they've they've left it there as they uh, preserved the building so if you tour the building you can see you can see the drive-through morgue incredible but again if you did not know what it was you were looking at you wouldn't have any idea of its significance no or or certainly wouldn't know what what went through the drive-through window no no <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. I think that's yes, uh, and, and the building is haunted, yes. So I think that's a, a a good snapshot of these extreme opposites coming together. But of course the, the opposites, of course, they had a very innate conflict, but also they were they existed because of each other. Yes. You really couldn't have the, the one without the other extreme, to be honest. It wouldn't have existed. And uh, it was a wild, wild and woolly time. It it really was. And I I think it all contributed to people have often asked me how you would describe Joplin. And and in some sense, there there is a bit of that sense of the frontier just below the surface still. It is. It is. And and I think it's, it's evocative. I do think that there is such a thing as generational memory or ancestral memory. And I think that there is something to the idea that certain spaces also hold memories. Yes, I think I think that is where you hit it on the head right there. I, I do think that's very true. And maybe that is a good thought to leave on tonight. <laughs> I, so. 
in between, we, we invite you to not forget to check out upcoming events and merchandise at darkozarts.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. Thank you again to Always Buying Books and Beard Engine Brewing Company for helping to bring the Dark Ozarts to everyone. On the next episode, we are going to be discussing the most iconic haunted mansions in the Ozarks. Catch the Dark Ozarks podcast on Branson Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or about any other podcast platform. Thank you, everyone. And remember, there are no easy answers in the Dark Ozarks. <laughs>